Well, I've been um, parenting for about 10 years. My oldest is 10. I have a 10-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 4-year-old. And I've learned that one of the keys to successful parenting is managing expectations, managing the expectations of your children. So let me explain. When we're going somewhere, when we're going to do something, I've learned that it is as important to tell my girls not just what we're going to do, but here's a list of the things we're not going to do. Because children have wild imaginations, and if we're honest, children have kind of selfish imaginations. And so when we go, like yesterday, I took my girls to Target because they love Target, and that's their mom's fault. And so my, my four-year-old, if one of her first words was Target. And so I said, they said, we want to go to Target and walk around. And so I said, yes, we can go to Target, but let me give you a list of things we're not doing. We're not buying anything. You're not getting a slushie. You're not getting a pretzel. Like, I know I sound like a miserable guy, but if I don't say those things up front, guess what happens? I'm not managing their expectations. And this is so important in life that we, we do this. And isn't it true that we also learn over time to manage our own expectations? What are we going to get out of something? And sometimes we have high expectations and we're disappointed, and, and, and then it's not, a, it's not a good thing. This past Monday was what I consider to be a national holiday. It was Amazon Prime Day. And on, on, on Prime Day, they, they ran all sorts of deals. And they said, if you log on at 3 p.m., we're going to have, or log in, you're going to have all sorts of special Amazon Prime deals. And I, I just was curious. I didn't, I didn't want to buy a lot, but I just like to see. And so I logged on, and I, I, I found something I was looking for, and I kept trying to search for it. And I kept getting this screen. Um, Sorry, something went wrong on our end. And every time it would pop up, it would pop up with a different little dog, as if the dog was supposed to calm you down. Like, sorry, our website's not working, but here's a cute dog to look at. Like, they can distract us that way. Like, you've forgotten that you were looking for an air fryer, and now you're looking at a little dog. And so uh, I was a little bit disappointed. And so I, I, we learn in life to manage our, our expectations. You know, what do we expect out of life? What do we expect out of it? Uh, what do we expect from each other? What do we expect from God? And maybe the most important question is this. What do we do when those expectations aren't met? What do we do with unfulfilled expectations about life, about other people, and even about God? And in the psalm that we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 73, the psalmist whose name is Asaph, he's dealing with this. He has some unmet expectations. And Let's read the first two verses of Psalm 73. He's at a crisis of faith because things aren't going the way he expected. In verse 1, he kind of makes this statement, this overarching statement of faith. He says, truly God is good to Israel, good to those who are pure in heart. Now this is, he kind of uses this as a summary statement, but then uh, we're going to see that this is not the way he feels all the time. In verse 2 it says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. He said, something tripped me up. What? Verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph has noticed something about life, and it's really bothering him. It's, it's um, confronting his expectations. It's defying his expectations. It's crushing his expectations. And Asaph has really two views of the world that kind of go hand in hand, and, and, and this is what they are. Number one, his, his one view is this, that bad people will get bad, bad things will happen to bad people. And sort of hand in hand with that, number two, good things should happen to good people, right? And this seems sort of fair. It sounds like karma, right? 
Uh, what goes around comes around. What you put in, you get out. If you're bad, bad things will happen to you. If you're good, good things will happen to you. But he's looking around at what he can see with his own eyes, and he's saying, it doesn't seem that way. And so because I don't see that happening, he says, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Let's look at his first, his first expectation. His first expectation was this. Bad people will get what's coming to them. If they're bad, bad things are headed their way. But then in verses 4 through 12, I'm not going to read them to you this morning, but in verses 4 through 12 of this psalm, Asaph describes what he actually sees, the way of the wicked people, the evil people. And here's, some, here's a summary. Here's some things he says. He says, I look at them, and they wear their pride like jewelry, like jewelry, like they show it off, like, like they flaunt it, like they want people to see. And then he says, the wicked people, not only do they wear their pride like jewelry, they clothe themselves in violence. They, they wear violence like a garment. And he says, their bodies are fat and sleek, Fat and sleek. I've spent most of my adult life trying to figure out how can I be both of those things, fat and sleek. They don't seem to go together. But what he's saying is that just life is easy for them. It's, things are smooth for them. They get the best of everything. It says, he goes on to say they scoff and they mock heaven and they look at heaven and say, God doesn't see, he doesn't hear, he doesn't notice. And then he says, despite all of that, this is what I notice, their lives are easy and they increase in riches. And here's what he's saying. He's saying these evil, bad people do what they want, they say what they want, they live how they want, yet they're healthy and wealthy, and their lives seem easy and enjoyable. And so he's wrestling with really a set of questions that maybe all of us, if we're honest, we, we, we wrestle with at times. Questions like this. Why do the wicked prosper? Why don't bad things happen to bad people? Why didn't that person who cut me off in traffic get pulled over? Shouldn't they get what's coming to them, and shouldn't I have a front row seat to watch it? This Thursday, I boarded a plane in Philadelphia to fly to Dallas for a meeting, and uh, I was flying with American Airlines, and the flight was completely full. And uh, so I get on, and now, I had an aisle seat. I always select an aisle seat. I don't know. How many of you are aisle seat people when you fly? I like an aisle seat. I just want to get out. I, there's n- literally nowhere I can go, but for some reason, I want to get out. And so I, I pick the aisle seat. So, but I'm, I, I sit in the aisle seat. Um, there's an, a slightly older lady in the middle, and then there's a really another big guy uh, sitting against um, the window. And we take off, and we're flying, and I'm just kind of minding my own business. And I'm always very conscious of my space. I'm a bigger guy, so I try not to, like, intrude too much and bother the people next to me. So I always kind of lean away from people and try to keep my space. And now, the lady next to me, she's a little older, like I said, and so she was texting. There's internet on the phone. She's text or internet on the plane. She's texting, and because she's older, her font was, like, enormous, just huge. I've never seen font that size uh, on a phone. And uh, I wasn't trying to read what she was writing, but she wasn't hiding it either. Like she had it out in front of her and it was enormous. And uh, she was texting. It looked like maybe her husband or a boyfriend or something. And I looked over and just happened to see this text. I'm sitting between two big men who are hogging all this space. So <laughs> I was a little bit offended. Like, I know, I'm a, I know I'm a big guy, but, like, I'm intentionally not trying to hog her space, and now she's telling the story that's not true. It's really not true. I mean, he was a big guy, too, but neither one of us was really, was really pressing in towards her. We both are pressing away from her, but she had the nerve to, to say this. And so I'm sitting there sort of, like, churning on that, and, uh, and, like, five minutes later, she turns to me, and she's like, excuse me, can I get out? I, I need to use the bathroom. And what I wanted to say was, no, I'm too big to move, or uh, no, I'm, I'm too busy hogging the space to get out of your way. 
Of course, I didn't because I couldn't. Where am I going to go for the next two hours of the flight? It would have been an awkward rest of the flight. But I kind of wanted her to know, like, you were wrong. Like, you're wrong. Because first off, it's not really true, but you're kind of, it's rude for you to say that about us. And I think all of us at, at times in our lives, things like that happen. Maybe not that, but things like that happen. And we have this sort of inner drive to settle the score. We want to right wrongs. We're like Asaph. We look around and we say, it's not right, and I want to do something about it. Now, there's different ways that we approach this. Some people are more aggressive, and they try to take it into their own hands. Other people are maybe more passive-aggressive in their efforts, and they're a little more subversive or subtle. Some people just bemoan and complain and post on um, social media about it, and then other people stifle it and bury it. But the truth is, is no matter what your approach is in your heart, in our hearts, most of us have a list that we're making of people who need to get theirs someday. Bad people who should have it coming. And this is where Asaph is at. He's saying, bad things should happen to bad people, and it's not happening, and I'm not happy. And he goes on in verses 13 and 14, and he reveals something that's even darker in his heart as he reflects on what he sees. So he sees that the evil are prospering. And look at what he says in verses 13 and 14. He says, all in vain... Basically saying, it's been a waste of my time. All in vain, for no purpose, for no value, have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Why? Verse 14. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So Asaph isn't just saying the bad people aren't getting bad things. What he's now saying is maybe it's not worth it to serve God. I mean, if this is the way life goes, if this is the rules, if this is the outcome, if I'm then what's the point? I might as well live like them because they're pretty happy and they're doing pretty well. And here we get to his second expectation, not just that bad things happen to bad people, but his second expectation is this, I've been good, so life should go well for me. And now he's wrestling with a new set of questions. These are important questions. Have I been good in vain? Is this working out for me? Is it worth it to serve God? And what we learn here in this psalm that we need to pay attention to is that Asaph has been doing the right things, but for the wrong reasons. He's been keeping his heart pure. He has uh, been keeping his, he's been washing his hands, which means he's been kept his, he's been keeping his hands from sin, but he's been doing it for all the wrong reasons. Now, I was listening to a uh, podcast earlier this week, and the person in the podcast was sharing sort of like a memoir about his father who had passed away. And his father was a Jewish man, but not really a faithful Jewish man, but was Jewish, at least his nationality. And he was remembering his dad, and he said that there was one year, one year that his dad fasted for Yom Kippur. So I think faithful Jewish people will fast every year, but just one year he fasted. And... He fasted, quote-unquote, for God. But then, after the fast, this man went and played the lottery. And when he didn't win the lottery, he got angry at God. And he said, God failed me. And the father said, I will never do this again. Basically, here's what the father was saying. Because I was good, because I fasted, I should have won the lottery. And because we didn't win the lottery, then forget God. Who needs him? If he doesn't exist to meet my desires, then what's the use of him? What good is him? And here, here's what we have to confront ourselves with. When we obey God, when we live a good life, when we faithfully serve in a church or even give our money away, 
all in an attempt to get God to do things for us, then we're not really doing it for him, are we? Are we? We're doing it for ourselves. When we serve God in an attempt to secure God's favor or to manipulate him to do things for us or to maybe even just love us more, God, do you notice all the good things I'm doing? Will you love me more and will you bless my life? When you're doing it for those reasons, you're not doing it for him. You're doing it for yourself. Now, you might be wondering, is this me? And the easy answer is yes, because it's all of us on some level. But in what areas of our lives do we struggle with this? Well, what are the things that you do that you need people to notice you doing? What are the things that you do that you want people to uh, applaud you and appreciate you? I was thinking of like, you know, you're out in public and you're holding a door open for somebody. So you hold the door open. And you ever had this experience where you hold the door for somebody and they walk by and they don't even acknowledge you? What happens? So here's what happens. I'll just say what happens to me sometimes. In my heart, I think this. What kind of person? (laughs) What kind of person doesn't say thank you when someone stops and holds the door for them. But here's the question I never ask. What sort of person needs to be thanked for holding a door open for someone? See, we we tend to look at other people and say, well, what's their problem? Well, what's my problem? Was I holding the door open for them if I need to be thanked? No. I was holding the door open for me to get something out of it. And a lot of us approach God this way, and we think, well, what are the things that I do for God that gives me more status in the kingdom, more control over his blessings, more influence in people's lives, or maybe even a local church, we think, here's all the things I've done in the church, and so it gives me more rights. My voice is louder than others. My vote should count for more because of who I am and all that I have done. What are those things? Well, be careful, because it may be evidence in your heart that you never actually did it for God. You did it in an attempt to secure something for yourself. So Asaph is at this moment, and then we come to the turning point in Psalm 73, where he enters the sanctuary. It's this key moment of repentance, where it says, he says, basically, I thought all these things, but then I entered into the sanctuary of God, and I realized something. Now, here's just something I want us to learn from this psalm about repentance. There's sort of a progression in the psalm of repentance, and it's this. In verse 2, he repents, but it's because how, it's how sin affects him. So in other words, he's sorry because he got caught and it's something. But in verse 15, it changes to not just how sin affects me, but he begins to talk about how sin will affect others. He says, if I spoke my doubts out loud, it would have, it would have caused other people to sin. So now he shifts from thinking about himself to thinking about others. But finally, in verses 21 and 22, at the climax of the psalm, he realizes my sin doesn't just affect me. My sin is not just against me. My sin is not just against you. My sin is ultimately against God, against God. The 18th century preacher, Jonathan Edwards, taught this. He said, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, I'm not going to go through them all, but you might be familiar with them. He said, when it, go, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, you and I never break commandments two through ten unless we first break commandment one. And commandment one is simply, have no other gods before me. And Edward said, at the root of every sin is the choice to have a God besides the one true God. It's that idolatry that causes other sins. And that's why David, in Psalm 51, there's a man in the Old Testament named David who was a king, and he used his power to abuse a woman. And when he did so, uh, and actually to murder a man, so he did a whole series of things out of his place of power. And when he prayed his great prayer of repentance in Psalm 51.4, he says this, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. Now you might think, hold on, David, not just against God. What about her? 
And what about him? And what about your nation? And what about your leaders? And what about your army? And what about all these people? So what does this mean? How can David say, against you and you alone have I sinned? And what this means is David was plugged into this idea that my sin against others was first and foremost a sin against God. I chose something else. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, we sin because we're looking, listen to this, we sin because we're looking to something else to give us what only Jesus can give us. That's the moment of sin. We sin because at that moment, we're looking to something else. Approval, acceptance, popularity, control, success, wealth, pleasure, uh, whatever it is. We look to that and we say, can you give me something? But only Jesus can give it. He goes on to say, we're either trusting in that thing, or so he says, we are trusting in that thing rather than in Christ for our righteousness or for our salvation. Now, if that's true, and I believe it is, then this is also true. Repentance can never be simply a renewed desire and passion and earnest and effort to do better or to try harder. It can't. Repentance is not simply me saying, I messed up, I'm going to do it right next time, and I'm going to try super hard, and I'm going to bear down, and I'm going to use all of my willpower and all of my sincerity and all of my passion and all of my determination. Now, those are fine things. But that in and of itself is not biblical repentance. Biblical repentance, according to Psalm 73, always involves entering the sanctuary. Now, I don't mean literally entering this room. What I mean is it always involves seeing God for who he is. Biblical repentance is not simply turning away from bad things, but it's turning to the only good thing. It's turning to God and beholding him. Because here's the truth, and we talked about this in our membership class on Sunday night, until you have a revelation of Jesus and see him to be more beautiful, more wonderful, more true, more, more sure than anything else in this world, until you see something more beautiful than all the other things you're chasing after, you'll never leave those things. You know that, right? If you want your kid to drop some crummy toy, you have to do what? You gotta give him a better toy. You gotta show him something shinier. And then they gladly drop that that other toy because they've got something better. And that's what it means to repent. We turn away, we see the things that we've been chasing for the useless things that they are, the idols that they are that can't save us or sustain us or satisfy us, and we turn into the sanctuary and we look and we see Jesus for who he is and what he's done, and we say, you know what? He's so much more beautiful than this thing. And we turn from that to him. And so Asaph saw this, and here's what he sees in the psalm. He understands when it comes to the wicked people, yes, their way is fruitless. And he talks about it in the psalm. He says eventually they're gonna, they are going to be destroyed, and eventually their lives are going to come to ruin. But that's not what ultimately comforts his heart. That's not ultimately what changes him. He also discovers that all along he's had the same motivations in his heart that they've had in their hearts. But their motivations have led them to bad behavior, and his selfish motivations had actually led him to good behavior. Look at this. In verse 21 and 22, what does Asaph say? He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast towards you. He's not seeing himself properly saying, this is who I was. And all of my goodness and all of my making good choices, this is who I actually was. I was like a beast towards you. And in the end, he realizes he's no better than those he despises. He wanted them to get theirs, but now he realizes, I'm one of them. I'm just like them. Now, maybe not in the way he lives his life. Maybe he lives his life very differently from them. But he's just like them in his heart. Now, how? Well, Augustine said this. He said, idolatry, 
And idolatry, uh, he's going to define for us here. Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used. I think we understand that. Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshiped. Now, that's a little different, that definition. So the first one, I think, we think of idolatry. Idolatry is when we worship anything that ought to be used and not worshiped. But he says idolatry is also when we use anything that ought to be worshiped. And what Augustine is saying is this. Some people turn things into God, but other people, listen, other people turn God into a thing. Let me say it again. Some people turn things into a God. They worship their cars, they worship their jobs, they worship their families. Some people turn a thing, and there's a good things, they're not bad things. They turn good things into a God thing, but other people turn God into a thing. Now, how do you turn God into a thing? Here's how you do it. You see God as a means to an end, a way to get what you really want. And when Asaph said, man, I don't know if it's worth it to serve God because they seem so happy and their lives are so easy, what he really was saying was this, my true God is the easy life. What I really want is what they have. And God, you're not getting me there, so maybe I need to look somewhere else. And he's turned God into a thing. Anytime you serve God to get something out of it, that quote-unquote something is your true God. So if you say, I'm serving God so that my children are always healthy, well, then the health of your, ch- your children is your true God. If you say, I'm serving God so that, uh, so that he'll bless me financially, then finances is your true God. If you say, I serve God because it makes me feel more morally and religiously superior to the people who don't go to church, then your feeling of morale, your feeling of superiority is your true God. This is what Asaph is discovering here. Anytime you serve God to get something out of it, that something is your true God. So what is the only right expectation in life? And we come to this key word in the text, and it's the word, Leanne read it for us this morning, it's the word nevertheless. Nevertheless. Because he says at the end of verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant, I was a beast towards you. But now let's look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. I'm a beast. I'm brutish. I'm a sinner. I'm wicked. But nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Every Christian has a powerful encounter with in an ongoing sense of the nevertheless of grace. The nevertheless. I am this. This is who I am. But nevertheless, let me read some examples for you. I am, see if you can identify with any of these, I am impatient with my family members. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. I am distracted in my devotional life. Nevertheless, there's grace. I am, I'm insecure about my looks. I'm unsure about my value. I'm inconsistent in my love toward God. I'm selective in my love towards other people. I'm carried away by my temptations. I'm disappointed in myself. I'm unable to be the person I want to be. I'm weak in my flesh. Or as the great hymn says, I'm prone, Lord, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Nevertheless, God says, I am continually with you. I'm continually with you, and I will bring you to glory. And this is the grace of God, that whatever goes before the nevertheless, on the other end of the nevertheless is the grace of God there to meet you and save you and sanctify you and secure you for the day of redemption. Now, really quick, two things have to be said about grace. Number one, grace 
Grace is not license to sin. Grace isn't freedom to follow your desires over Jesus and Jesus is like, I'm cool with it. Grace isn't, grace is this. Grace is the power over sin and grace is the power to follow Jesus. Hear this. The same grace that freed you from the penalty of sin is now saving you from the power of sin in your life and the patterns of sin in your life. And if your experience with the grace that you found in Jesus isn't causing you to grow and mature, then maybe you've not really experienced his grace. Second thing we have to say about grace is this. Expecting grace means that we should not be surprised that there are going to be times in life we need grace. And we shouldn't conclude we've been abandoned when we need his grace. You ever get a gift that you need but you didn't really want? You ever have somebody maybe like, probably not this, but somebody gives you a gift and they're trying to give you a message? Like, here's a scale for Christmas. It's like, ah, I need it. I don't want it, but I need it. Or anybody try to gift you with a breath mint? Like, hey, you want a breath mint? No, I'm good. No, really. Like, seriously. Like, if we're going to continue to talk, you need to take my gift. Because there's some gifts that we need, and it's the needing of the gift that actually makes the gift valuable. And if we say, God, I love your grace and I want your grace, then we have to be willing to say there's going to be some pretty dark times in life when that grace is necessary and when that grace matters and when that gra- we need grace on top of grace. There will be circumstances in our lives that require grace and invite grace into our lives. And that's just the way grace works. Now, when you experience grace, there's a shift in your heart from why don't I have that and why do they have that to what the psalmist ends by saying, which is this, I have you, and that's enough. I have you, and that's enough. Now, let me close. Asaph, he has some hopes based on his expectations. Remember his first two expectations? The bad people, bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people. So if that's your view on life, it's kind of like a karma sort of view. If that's your view on life, then here's your hopes. Number one, you either are gonna hope that you can break the rules and hope that God doesn't notice, all in a selfish attempt to get what you want, or you can keep all the rules and hope that God does notice, all in a selfish attempt to get what you want, or you can find the hope that's found in grace. Let's read the last few verses. I want you to hear Asaph's heart and how much it's changed. Verse 25, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. We sang it this morning. But God is the strength of my heart, and he is my portion. It means he satisfies. He's enough forever. Verse 27, behold, those who are far from you, they they will perish and you will put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. It will happen. But then he doesn't end there. In verse 28, he says, but none of my business, none of my business, but for me, I won't concern myself with that stuff. Why? Because for me, all the goodness I need is being near God. It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Now, there's a phrase in there. I want to finish with this. It says, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Here's one way to translate that. Having you, there's nothing else on earth I desire. Now that I have you, there's nothing else on earth that I desire. So here's the question as we close. How does someone, how do I, how do you, how do we move from the question, what's in it for me if I serve you, God, to the statement, 
having you, there's nothing else I need. There's nothing else I desire. And the only way we move is grace, is grace. When we experience grace, it changes the way we see everything, and it makes us grateful. I want you guys to watch this video. It went viral a couple years ago. There's a young boy who was born colorblind. Maybe you saw this. He'd never seen color before. And they made glasses that allowed him to see color. And I want you to watch this. This is a minute-long video. And as you watch it, as he puts those glasses on that allow him to see color, I want you to imagine this is what it's like when you experience grace. Let's watch this video together. He said, I sort of always knew they were there. And I think that's true of grace. I think all of us, no matter what our journey's been, we all sort of know, or at least hope, I hope there's something else. I, I hope there's grace for me. I hope there's a way for me to get in that doesn't require me to go redo the things I can't redo from my past. It's like, I always knew they were there, but now I see. He, last thing he said was, it changed my life. It's changed my life, and grace does that. But what I really loved about this video was this. Within seconds of him getting the video, or getting the glasses on, what did he do? He turned to his father. His father was the one who gave him the glasses, and he turned to him to say, thank you. Now, this is what grace does. It doesn't make us more selfish or more self-centered. It makes us more grateful. It makes us turn to God and to thank him for his grace in our lives. And so when we struggle in our lives with the question, is it worth it to serve God? Let's remember this conclusion that Asaph comes to. Having you, there's nothing else I desire on earth. Let's pray together this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would minister grace to the hearts of your people this morning. Those who have come in this morning and maybe they are surprised by your grace. Maybe it's hard for them to receive your grace or to even believe in your grace. Thank you that your spirit helps us. We don't have to do it on our own. We don't have to figure it out on our own. We don't have to do it in our own willpower. We simply receive the grace found in you. You're enough. You're everything we need. You satisfy our hearts. And if we had nothing else, we have you. And to be near to you is the greatest goodness that a human heart can experience. If you're here this morning and you just, wherever you're at in your journey of faith, maybe you don't have a relationship with God, maybe you have a relationship with Jesus, but you just want to respond this morning by raising your hand and saying, this morning, I just want to respond to God's grace. And by raising your hand, you're saying, I need more grace in my life to love Jesus and to trust Jesus. Just lift your hand in the air. I'm going to pray for you this morning. Those of you that would respond, say, I just need more grace to know God, to love God, to serve him, to follow him. God, you see these hands, you see these hearts. We thank you that you love to give us grace. In fact, you sent your son full of grace, grace in place of grace, grace on top of grace. And I pray that in your grace, you would minister to these hearts, lift the hearts that are heavy, touch the bodies that are weak, strengthen the souls that are struggling, oh God, and help us to find everything that we need and desire is in you.